0: We're going to look this morning at another one of the uh, churches given to us in the book of Revelation by virtue of letters written by the Lord Jesus and uh, given to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in roughly 96 A.D. And uh, this happens to be the last of the churches that got letters. Unfortunately, it's not a happy story. The church at Laodicea had issues. Um, It was actually the church that made God gag, to put it mildly. There were no... The letters had a certain pattern they followed, and each letter was quite similar with regards to the the order. Uh, In this particular case, the church at Laodicea didn't have anything going for it as far as commendation. Nothing at all that the Lord had to say that would... Uh, give them encouragement as far as what they were doing properly. It was pretty much all bad. Um, just to put everything into uh, context and picture, I have a map that you've seen in the other uh, messages that I've given. The, um, the churches are all in order, starting at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and lastly, church number seven is Laodicea. That's the one we're gonna look at today. Uh, really interesting town, really interesting location, and in the next picture we'll show, uh, there should be another map there, is there another map? No other map? Okay, uh, there, there's uh, a closer view of three different communities in the area. The, the, the Church of Laodicea was shown uh, is, is a part of the Lycus River Valley, a broad five or six mile wide valley. On the, on the north side of that valley is a town called Hierapolis. On the south side is Laodicea. It sits on a little plateau above the valley. And just to the uh, east of Laodicea, about eight miles of the crow flies, is the town of Colossae, which is famous for the book of Colossians and the letter that Paul wrote to it. Now, we know from history that the, um, uh, Paul apparently had never gone to Colossae or Laodicea. The church of Colossae is uh, said to have been founded by one of the protégés of Paul, converted in Ephesus, named um, Epaphras. And Epaphras was from Colossae. And he had visited and planted a church in his hometown and also was credited with playing the church that became and grew in Laodicea. Uh, Paul, also, we know in the book to Colossae, wrote a letter to Laodicea, which the church of Colossae was told to exchange letters so they both may read them. Unfortunately, the church uh, letter to uh, Laodicea from Paul did not survive in the scripture for whatever reason. It's not part of our scripture. But uh, Paul knew of uh, Laodicea, he knew Epaphras well, and the book to Colossae does mention the church at Laodicea. Now the city of Laodicea itself, and the aerial shot you see of it, is is the modern day uh, picture of the church at Laodicea, which has been, uh, had lots of archaeological uh, digging that's taken place over the last uh, several decades. That's an overview of it. What I want you to get from this picture is the ornate uh, design and structure of this incredible city. Uh, The streets you can see are colonnaded and paved. It actually had underground drainage systems on the streets. Uh, it It was an opulent city in its day. That street view shows that very closely. One of the features of the town, typically of all these towns in this area of western modern Turkey, were the Greek and Roman influence. Most of these remains in Laodicea dated uh, after this letter to the church in Laodicea because they had a massive earthquake that required rebuilding. That took place in uh, 60 AD, before the letters actually, but it was rebuilt more of a Roman style than a Greek. And was all done new now this is very important to get a hold of because a lot of these things I tell you come back in the letters to mean something and the first thing is that this was a very wealthy place what they had the primary the primary uh market if you will was woolen goods they had a particular velvety black wool that came from the sheep that grazed in the surrounding valley and it was world known it was it was a a famous uh, designer type of wool that people bartered for, and it was it was exported all over. Um, and it was an outer garment, long black outer garment which went to the ground, a stole in Greek. Um, unlike unlike the stole, which just covers the neck, I think this was that full length garment, opulent, highly looked for, highly sought after. And Ephesus, I mean, the, the, the road to Ephesus and to the, to the Middle East goes right through uh, this town, a, a perfect highway for commerce. It was very wealthy, very, very wealthy. And it was so wealthy, in fact, that when they had the earthquake in AD 60, the Roman emperor, and it was a 7.0, calculate, and it affected the whole region. And Hierapolis, just to the north, which means holy city in Greek, had temples and a, a huge hot spa, and it was a place where people went to visit. And uh, there was a hot spot near Laodicea, which is still in existence today uh, as a vacation spot. Um, these were attractions. Uh, so they had lots going on in, in the city of Laodicea. The, um, the, the commerce which took place was usually uh, accompanied by guilds, uh, the, the beginning of labor unions. And part of the, one of the features of labor unions is they had patron um, gods to which they worshiped as part of their union meetings. And uh, this was something that Christians obviously uh, don't go well with. Hold that fast. This earthquake in AD 60, like I said, did a lot of damage to the, to the region. And the Roman emperor offered funds for rebuilding. The church of Laodicea said, no thanks we got this. They were very prideful of their wealth, and they did. They rebuilt their own city without any outside help. Uh, that becomes important, I think, in a minute. Um, many other features uh, of the town. The uh, uh, There was a medical practice here that involved a uh, the primary emphasis for it was they had an eye and ear salve they made, probably from something to do the residue from the hot springs that were in the area that would soothe or help eyes and ear ailments. And they had a, 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 a quite a, uh, an industry, if you will, in the medical field as well. Somewhat similar to Pergamon, where I talked about Scyplios, Escipl- the, uh, the god of healing in, uh, in Greek mythology. The uh, temple you see here is uh, dates after this letter, but there were many temples. The patron god of uh, Laodicea was Zeus. The Zeus is the king of gods. Um, and as time went on and as Roman culture and influence came in, and during this exact time of this letter, the Roman Emperor was a Roman emperor by the name of Domitian. and he was the first of the Roman emperors to declare himself God in the flesh. And he used some of the very similar words to um, that we see in Christianity, like Lord, and 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 he used those about himself, not in context of Christianity per se, but it just happens to come up in a way that it is the reverse of Christianity. And he was worshipped in the flesh. Unfortunately for him, uh, most Romans didn't like the idea. They worshipped. They, they preferred to worship their. Emperors after they died now there were temples to worship the emperors but they were all for dead uh, emperors and he was making them to worship him here and now so you can see this uh, this issue culturally which takes place uh, one thing that it was a feature of this time and, and place and era was there were lots of Jews in this area at least 50,000 there was um, a temple tax around this time, which was taken, and a local ruler got wind that they were sending money to Jerusalem, to the temple. The, uh, the, the rate at which they had to give was it was all confiscated before it got there because they didn't want to export that cash. Very similar to today where you don't want to export uh, your cash to Mexico, for example, because it doesn't do the work here, which we would like to have it done. Money is uh, you know, gets things moving. And so if you export it out, it doesn't get work done here. So this guy actually confiscated the temple tax, if you will, of all these Jews, and the amount of it counts up to 7,500 males, just from Laodicea. So it was a large Jewish uh, community. The town of Hierapolis to the north slightly, supposedly had up to 50,000 uh, around the AD 62. So it's a lot of Jews, and they were brought here, by the way, from Persia and it was after Alexander the Great conquered Persia, they moved these people to this part, they moved the Jews to this part of the the world in order to stabilize the area. Uh, In ancient days, that's what they would do with captured people, they would move them around as it suited their purposes. In this case, they moved them to Turkey to do business. The Jews thrived here, lots of money here, they did a lot of uh, of, uh, built in, and the one feature of the Jews was, Because they were monotheistic, they were exempted from worshiping the emperor. They were the only people group that had that exemption. And as long as the Christians were considered Jews to them, because that was an offshoot of Judaism, the Christians were spared as well. But by this time, the Jews had made sure that they knew that they were not us. And so under the rule of Domitian, many, many Christians were executed because they would not worship a Roman emperor. So just put that in context, and as we go forward, these things will make sense with what the Lord says to uh, this church. The next picture I have actually dates approximately 480, 300 years after the letter, but it's interesting, and you'll see it's in the shape of a little cross. This is actually a church in Laodicea, and anybody have any idea what that is? Just take a guess. It's Inter- the interactive part. It's a baptismal. And it looks like to me it's baptism by immersion. So you can see that there were Baptists in Laodicea after this letter. So the Lord calls them to repent, and at least, at least somehow, several hundred years later, they had a rather large church. This, this church, by the way, measures... 45 by 42 yards and occupied what then was a the city block in the city of Laodicea. There were also up to 20 other chapels found archaeologically in the remains of Laodicea. Just to the east, like I said, is Colossian, Colossi. And what's interesting there is it, from Google Earth, if you look at the remains of Laodicea, you can see from space that there's something there. Almost an identical-looking mound, if you will, of dirt is in Colossae, completely untouched. They have not uh, done any archaeological digging in Colossae itself, the original Colossae, which is interesting, uh, but not important. So let's begin now in Revelation 3.14 and see what the Lord says to this church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of God says this um, as, as is typical these letters begin with from the to, the to the angel of the church Laodicea the angel means messenger this refers to the, the elder if you will of the church, the messenger of, of God to this church writing this letter and then the next section always describes Christ in some in some way in this sense, in this tape, it's the Amen, uh, and true witness, and beginning of the creation of God says this. The uh, Amen is, a, is an interesting word. In, in Hebrew, it's pronounced Amen, uh, "Amen," and it's, in, and it's pronounced, I think, Amen in uh, Arabic. It's a Semitic word that different Semitic languages still use, and it means basically the same thing. It means true, or truth, or it is a fact. And uh, God himself is called the God of truth. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16 says this, Because he who blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who serves in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. The context of the scripture, there's not what I'm trying to bring out, but the God of truth here in Hebrew is the God of Amin. And so, uh, God is truth, and Jesus is God, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He said in scripture many times, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, in the King James, that is the word, Amen. Amen, Amen, I say to you. So the authority which he speaks would be pronounced by the word Amen. He is the Amen, and the faithful, and true witness. Now the beginning is an interesting word in Greek, and it's important because uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses actually use this passage to say that Jesus was not God in heaven, that he was created, the first creation. But the word here, if you ever have Jehovah's Witnesses over, you can tell them the Greek word, is archaic. And R. K is a a ruler or origin. And uh, not the word protokos, proto, prototype. That means the beginning of a sequence. Different word. Now, Jesus is referred to that elsewhere, but in the context of that, it's very clear that he is the first first made in terms of preeminence, not in order. Does that make sense? So, the beginning here is the beginning in the sense of the ruler, the founder, the origin of, as we see in John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the beginning and the Creator. The same idea in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, and whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Uh, the Lord Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all that is. Now he writes to this church in verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word spit there is a is the rather mild term. Uh, a footnote in one of my Bibles said vomit. But uh, the Strong's Concordance uses the word spew. Uh, you know when you're at a dinner party and you get something in your mouth that you know, probably doesn't want to be there very long, you bring your napkin to your mouth and you spit it out. This is not that. It's the thing you get in your mouth that's got to come out now. You know? Spew. And so, this is a very strong word. This church has gotten to the point where it is so distasteful to the Lord that he desires to spew it from his mouth. He says he knows their deeds. He knows their works. He knows what they've done. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 and 17 speaks to deeds. And it speaks to evaluating the works that you see taking place around you. We're we're called, there's a misnomer, I think, in Christian circles sometimes. We're, We're told not to judge. By Scripture, judge not, lest you also judge. I think were the words of Jesus. There's two different meanings of the word judged. There's appraisal, and there's condemnation. They're not the same. We're called to appraise, as we're going to see here. We're supposed to look and see and evaluate fruit. Now, when we find fruit that's unsavory, our job is not to condemn. That's the Lord's job. Uh, in love, we can point out where we see potential issues, but that is, we are not to condemn. That's not our job. Matthew seven sixteen. This is all part of the Olivet Discourse. Now, I've got several passages here for that. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Or perhaps in the case of this church in Laodicea, no fruit at all. Matthew six, sixteen to twenty-four. Jesus is talking again on the, the Mount of Olives. It's a long discourse. He says this: Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so they will not be noticed. By, they, so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will be not noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Where thieves do not break or steal, and your where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, and then so then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is closed or bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one. And love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Remember the aspect of the city. A very rich, very rich town made up by very rich people. There's houses, the archaeological remains are in the 1,500 to 2,000 square foot range. That was extraordinary at this time in history. At the same time, in Palestine, the average Jewish home would would fit on this platform, the tall part of the platform. Um, These were houses the size of the sanctuary, were average for these people. They were very wealthy and very happy at being wealthy. So I think what you see here uh, is a church that was very comfortable. What does God mean by hot and cold? And why is he going to spew this church out of his mouth? This is interesting as well. The church here had a problem with water. Um, They were elevated off the river valley so you had to get water up there and it came primarily as they know from archaeological remains from the south where the warm springs were. So the water by the time it got to Laodicea was a full of all sorts of minerals the the water pipes were clogged with minerals that arch, the architect archeologically or clogged with minerals and so it had an unpleasant taste but it was also not hot anymore and it was not cold so it didn't serve a useful purpose as it came into the houses in other words hot and cold we use today and and the lord uses this as well as good and bad but in the context it was Yuck! And this is the way he looks at this church, and he says, as we're going to see in a minute, uh, I'll get to that in a second. Um, but I just wanted to get you the idea of this unpleasantness in this water. Uh, it, it, it describes a church that, you know, a cold church would be one that is dead, um, and and a vibrant, hot church would be functioning, uh, fully functioning, on on fire. Uh, for the Lord Church. Um, and in, in this next verse, I want to look at again. again from the Olivet Discourse. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Matthew 7, 24 and 27, and axe on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall. For it has been founded on the rock, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell. And great was its fall. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. Jesus goes on to say, Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and uh, and that shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So the problem was they were rich, they were secure, they were happy. And as the words of Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, there is nothing worse than being content with with riches. Because you are no weaker, no more poor than you could possibly be when you think you finally arrived because you've got enough money in the bank. Or you've got great clothes on, you're wearing designer gowns from the, 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 the fields of... Uh, Laodicea, or you are have your eyes healed and see perfectly well because of the, the, uh, the goo they make, make up for eye salve, when in fact you are blind, naked, and poor. This was a church that had become so focused with getting along in a rich Roman culture that they had lost their purpose in the Lord completely. So much so that the Lord wants to spew them out of his mouth in disgust. There is a tradition that the the churches in Revelation represent different eras of history, starting from the apostles through modern times. And in this theory, the church of Laodicea represents the church since 1900. I don't buy into that. But there are certain interesting elements that do reflect that. Um, This is supposedly representing the church today at large, which I will say, yes, these churches absolutely exist. I've been in them. Um, I'm not suggesting we are one of them, but there's a danger in the culture in which we live of being just exactly this church. How easy is it to accommodate yourself with the culture and times which are completely opposed to Christian teaching and doctrine? If we are really teaching and being who Christ called us to be, we are going to rub people raw in our society and culture. And in fact, that is a badge of honor. Not to be irritating because we're jerks, but because we tell the truth and the truth hurts. If we are representing the way, the truth, and the life in our culture community, we ought to be rubbing them the wrong way. If we are going out of the way not to offend by not telling the truth, we are becoming like the church in Laodicea. It's a very, very strong warning to us. I think the value of the letters to the churches is that there's something in all these churches which we need to be very wary of, and the things that are praised in them ought to be things we have to seek, and the things that we see that the Lord condemns we ought to really be careful of. And I think in modern context, the culture in which we live now is much more like the city of Laodicea than it was 150 or 200 years ago. but The culture has moved on beyond a Christian era and is now becoming anti-Christian in character. There's nothing to panic about. These things are all over the globe. We're becoming more like the globe now, and we have an opportunity to serve with a, an increased fervor with people who have rejected the truth intentionally, turning away from the truth in order to do whatever they Darn well, please. Now, one one subject that comes into mind, a, a, a man that's given to us in, in Matthew 19, I, I'm not going to read these scriptures, just to bring it up, but you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? And he and Jesus says, well, keep these laws, do these things, and he goes, I've done all that. He says, what else am I going to do? He goes, okay, sell all you've got and follow me. And he's, he was like, And he went away. He couldn't do that because he didn't trust in the Lord. He did things. He did deeds. But his heart did not belong to the Lord. Where was his heart? In his stuff. In his stuff. George Carlin, this just occurred to me, George Carlin had a routine where he talked about stuff and he said, pretty soon your your house is full of your stuff and you had a a bigger house so you can get more stuff. And it was... That's, isn't that the way we live? We just collect stuff. We, uh, my house is full of stuff. My attic is full of stuff. Nancy, get rid of that stuff. <laughs> we're gonna someday. We're gonna get rid of it, aren't we? Um, but the deceits of wealth, the deceit, if you will, of wealth, it lies to you. It gives you false sense of security. There is no security in wealth. There is no security in stuff. Um, and because this. These people said they were rich, they, they were poor, and they were blind. They couldn't see the truth right in front of them. Right, They couldn't read the scripture and truth didn't speak to them. Um, John MacArthur thinks they were just flat lost people. Uh, I'm not so sure that's true, but they certainly were functioning like completely lost people. They, had, they were completely blind to the truth. Uh, can you arrive there and be a believer, having been a believer, true believer? I say, yes, you can when the Holy Spirit prompts you and you push that aside, eventually you grow calluses and you don't feel or see it anymore. And I think that happened here. In John chapter 9, now this is a long story, so I'll I'll just bring it up to date for these few verses. There was a man healed on the Sabbath by Jesus. And the Pharisees got bent out of shape because you couldn't do that on the Sabbath. It's against the law. And so... In the long story, this poor man who who just keeps telling me, I don't know, he just healed me. And eventually they excommunicate him from the church. Now, to put this in context, to get excommunicated from a a Jewish synagogue would be like an Amish getting kicked out of the Amish community. No longer part of that community. Only unlike uh, the Amish person in Lancaster, he could go across town and, and do fine. If you're in Jerusalem, and you're excommunicated from the synagogue, you are a man without a country. You can't get work, you can't get, you're done. And but Plus, the guy, he was blind, but now he sees. That's all he's got going for him, he can see. But, this is a very harsh thing, so Jesus actually seeks this man out. And, uh, this, is, this is what, the sort of the end of that story. Verse 35 in John 9. Jesus heard that they had put him out, excommunicated him. And finding him he said, "Do you believe in the Son of man?" He answered, "Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him?" Jesus said to him, "You have both seen him and he is the one who was talking with you." And he said, "Lord, I believe," and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, "For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may see may become blind." Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things. So they were following around. They, this was not done in, in a private conversation. They listened. And they heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. They were blind to the truth, but could see with their eyes. The church in Laodicea had become blind to the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, the amen they were blind to. Jesus introduced himself as the truth, and they are blind to the truth. 2 Corinthians talks again about this idea. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, the lost. in in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The world at large is and has always been blind to the reality that there is a God, He created it, He sustains it, and He deserves to be worshipped. The lost are blind to the truth. The only way that they can be... Have eyes to see is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are called to be his witnesses. And we actually talked about this in Sunday school this morning. The, the word witness in Greek is marteus. It's the word we get martyr from. A witness to the truth is a martyr. If you had to be killed for it, now you, now you get the official title martyr. But we are called to be witnesses to people who do not want to know the truth because they are blind to it. Now, the Holy Spirit takes care of the business end of it. We're required by the the Lord to be his speakers, his spokespeople on this this planet Earth at the time we live. That is our job. That is our job as individuals. It's our job as a church. Finally, in closing to this church, Revelation 3, 19-21, Jesus says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Now, The word, the first word that pops out here to me is the word zealous. What is this church? Lukewarm at best. They're not hot, for sure. And why does Jesus say earlier that, I wish you were cold? That seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? I wish you were just dead. Here's the reason why. If you're cold and you know it, you put something warm on. When you're lukewarm, you, eh, this is all right. See the difference? If you're cold, you know you got problems. So, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a lost person can finally sense that they are lost. Or they finally get the idea that they're drowning in their sin. But only if they're cold, only if they're drowning can they feel that. If they're okay, if they got money in the bank, eh, that's good for you. I see this a lot with the people I work with airline pilots. It's a tough group. They're they're uh, talented. They're smart. They got money. They don't need Jesus. They don't need God. That's I mean, it's okay for you. I mean, that's that whatever. It's a terrible place to be. The people in the middle are the really the battleground. There aren't. i honestly in all my life, I don't know if I've ever met a true atheist. A person that says they're an atheist, and you poke them a little bit, they usually they'll usually admit that they're agnostic because you can't prove that there is no God, but you can go, eh, I don't know. That's lukewarm. That's what these guys have become. In their culture, they're just, I don't know. I'm just doing what we do. Yeah, we're, we've got a church here, and we're going to business. This is a very bad place to be, and this where this church is. But here's what Jesus is doing. He is standing at the door, and he's knocking. He takes the initiative. He knocks. What is the job? What is our role in it? Open the door. Uh, another way to look at it is when the offer comes to accept Christ as your Savior, and, and how do you accept it? This is what, the way you accept any other gift, you open your hand. That's all the work you do is opening your hand to receive it. That's all you have to do here is to open the door and let him in. Uh, and then, and this is beautiful actually, um, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. This word dine is for the evening supper, which in most places in the world, not like America, is a long process. If you ever tried to get a, a table in Europe, which they eat like 8 or 9 o'clock, you have that table for the rest of the evening. I mean, they don't rush you out when you have dinner there. I mean, it's, it's a, meant to be fellowship and, and discussion and now it's like, you know, microwave and watch TV. I mean, we've lost the art of dining. And uh, this is what is described here. You know, t- culturally, it's hard for us to examine, but it's an it's a, it's a intimate fellowship. This dine, this, this, uh, this, this uh, uh, part of uh, having a relationship with Christ. So we'll have, he'll dine with us and, and have this relationship back and forth with, with the Creator of the universe. Um, an amazing promise. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on the throne and also uh, I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The promise here is that letting him into your life, you will have a relationship which will last for eternity. It's not temporary, it's not going to get you out of your troubles here on earth, but it will last you through eternity, always in this relationship with Him. It's a free gift, and it's given freely. Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2, uh, implores us, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for the length of days and years of life, and peace they will be added to you. Uh, Hebrews chapter tw- uh, 12, verses 6 to 11, which, by the way, in context is one chapter after the great great chapter of faith, the faith chapter. It goes on to say, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for uh, discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons So that we may share his holiness, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. John writes this in his uh, his epistle, uh, not his epistle, but his letter, 1 John 5, verses 1 to 5. Earlier it was mentioned that, that he whom the Lord loves overcomes as he overcame. We overcome by virtue of His overcoming, credited to our account. This is what John says about that. Whoever believes that Jesus is is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith in him. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you want to overcome the world, if you want to overcome the community in which we live, the place we live, the time we live, be a person of faith in this community, being willing to share what you know to be true, and you will change the world. Uh, this actually—I was talking to Scott this morning about that. If one person—and there's not one mentioned in this church—that was a, the other churches that had issues. Jesus said, "You know, there's some of you, there's a few of you, but the rest of you are are not doing what you should do." There was no one in this church. What would the influence of one person do to a church? that would change everything. Just one person of faith. I, I, I submit to you radically changing. The influence of one person in a, in a workplace that is a person of faith can have profound influence on everybody in that office, even though they may not even know it, may not acknowledge it. Your very presence will change conversation, it will change language, it will change all sorts of things just by your presence. Take that to heart. Now, this church was a terrible example. But like I showed the picture of the baptistry, it apparently did change. That city went on for several hundred years afterwards. Eventually, probably, they don't know for sure, was damaged by another massive earthquake and just was rebuilt and moved on. Uh, Now it's just architectural ruins. But we do know that this had a thriving church. It had a, uh, uh, a, a bishop that was there several hundred years later as well that was, that was a, a regional uh, 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 church uh, enclave, if you will, uh, a district uh, that was part of the area's administrative uh, head. So I, I pray that these individuals at this church at this time did respond appropriately uh, we don't know for certain, but we do know that the Word of God stayed there and thrived there for some years afterwards. I don't know about the, the area now, whether there's any churches. We do know that this is a, it's an Islamic area, uh, that if there are believers there, that they are in danger at any time of being um, executed for their faith. Uh, to refuse to proclaim Islam as truth would be to, uh, in many communities, to subject yourself to death. Um We're studying the rest of Revelation now in Sunday school, and we do know that time is coming when that will be the case for the entire world, that to proclaim your faith will cause your your death. Uh, We don't see that here. And this is where the danger, I think, comes into us, is that we are in a very comfortable place, a very rich country where all of our needs are easily met. Healthcare and uh, jobs are plentiful. And money is there for those who work. Um, it's it's a place to become comfortable and lazy and blind and deaf to the truth. And I'm, I'm afraid that our nation, by the day, is becoming more blind and deaf to the truth. Uh, you can see it as this morning as I come to church and people are out jogging and walking and playing soccer in the field over there. And... Uh, There's very, very little desire, very need. The people are not needed. They don't don't know they have a need. They don't know they're blind. They don't know they're lost. And how are they going to know unless somebody tells them? And that's the challenge for us, isn't it? How will they know unless somebody tells them? Who's the voice? Who's going to be the voice in the office place? Who's going to be the voice in the marketplace? Who's going to be the voice if it's not us? That's what Jesus is calling us to do in this church of Laodicea, to be his voice in our time and place in which he's places to live. And I thank God for the work that was done this week, that God was proclaimed here, that he was shown in loving ch- children and music. Uh, this is the, the sign of a church that knows what needs to be done. I just encourage you to keep doing it because we live in a really precarious time and place in this country.